overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. All right, we are live with another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Today with us, we have a really special guest. And if you guys look at his credentials, um, then you would think this person's like 60 or 70, but like he is in his mid-30s, only a little bit older than us. So it's absolutely crazy. Um, so we want to welcome Dr. Austin Chang to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, if you guys want to just check out his credentials, I'm not going to list them all because it'd be like five minutes of this episode. So just go check out his socials and his website. Um, his socials are at Austin Chang MD. We'll plug it all, it'll be in the show notes and everywhere. So go do that. So to start this off, um, we're going to have you just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you do what you do. So um, I grew up in Southern California, actually moved abroad when I was 10 and moved to Taiwan, came back for college, went to Duke uh, for undergrad, and then went to Columbia for med school, stayed there for internal medicine residency, did gastroenterology fellowship uh, and bariatric endoscopy fellowship at uh, Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, and also got my master's um, in public health at the same time at Harvard. And then completed all my training with a final fellowship in advanced endoscopy at Jefferson, where I ended up staying for my uh, for my current faculty position. As we can see on his background, <laughs> there, there's a lot of training going there. Did you know that this is something that you wanted to do your entire life? Like, why did you decide to do such an academic and rigorous kind of route? Yeah, no, I didn't know about you know this path. Um, it was kind of a um, a journey of discovery over several years. So I went into med school with an open mind. I kind of knew that I was going to go into healthcare or medicine. Um, growing up, it was just a perfect, um, union of my interest in science and kind of wanting to help people out and the usual thing. And, um, and when I went to med school, I just kept an open mind and tried to explore all the different specialties and, um, thought I wanted to do something procedural at first, like surgical, changed my mind because I was really inspired by the residents I worked with in internal medicine. And so went into IM, thought I was going to do pulmonary critical care, and then uh, switched a couple times to like interventional cardiology and then found my way to gastroenterology for a variety of different reasons. But mainly, I think it reintroduced that um, idea of doing procedures all over again. And, um, and it also provides a ton of variety with all the different organ systems that we deal with. Um, it's also like the people are great. My, a lot of my friends were going into the field and I was asking myself, like, why is that that all my friends are going into this field? And I knew that it was a popular competitive field and, and looked into it further and then kind of understood what was drawing them to this, this field. Um, like I said, procedures, variety, and a lot of like cool technology, you know, um, one of the things that I think a lot of people don't realize about gastroenterology is that it's really one of those fields that's trying to, um, adopt a lot of 
surgical concepts and make them less invasive. And, um, and so that's kind of what drew me ultimately to do this. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that's you know, a great answer. That's a, a lot of training. I think if I did all that training, I think I would be probably 40 or 50 by the time I was done. So that's even more impressive with you being almost our age. But so one thing we'd like to ask all of our guests is what preventive medicine means to them. And I think maybe to our listeners, you know, when you think about bariatric surgery specifically, maybe, maybe people are thinking of it as Oh, it's too late. This is a some after something's already happened, we're treating it. But at the same time, I think bariatric surgery in itself is preventing things down the line. Can you kind of talk talk to us about what preventive medicine means to you and how bariatric surgery plays a role in that? Yeah, I mean, I think that preventive medicine is so key. I, I think it's an underappreciated uh, and undertaught area in medical school. Um, so it's great that you have this podcast to shed light on it. Um, in terms of procedures that we do, a lot of the things that we do, even though they seem, they might seem therapeutic are actually preventative in nature because we're preventing worsened, uh, worsening of someone's condition or complications, other complications down the road. And, and bariatric procedures have the ability to, you know, prevent a lot of downstream, you know, um, uh, cardiovascular, uh, issues and things like that. So, and that's something that we're constantly trying to battle with insurance companies and trying to get coverage for some of these procedures is actually telling them that by doing so, we can actually prevent a lot of these longer term complications that are not only affecting patients' quality of life, but also incurring huge costs all around the, um, you know, around the entire landscape. So, uh, so it's preventative in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And just for semantics sake, it's bariatric endoscopy, correct? Not surgery. Yeah. So although I can speak for that as well, that like, you know, <laughs> all of these bariatric procedures are preventative in that way. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure. Cause when I was talking to Jason, I kept throwing on surgery and I just wanted to like <laughs> clear that up real quick. But yeah, um, apologies if I misspoke on that. <laughs> oh, no, 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 that, that's okay. And you know, honestly, like with bari- we, I work so closely with the bariatric surgeons and and even after they do their procedures, like years after patients get gastric bypass, for instance, things change, people regain weight, and it ends up, you know, being something that we can potentially help uh, fix as well. Yeah. So on the uh, topic of regaining weight, um, it looks like you're also board certified in obesity medicine. And if you look at like people who are obese and try to lose weight, um, I think one of the biggest things is that they do regain weight. I don't know the exact percentages. Jason probably knows off the top of his head, (laughs) but a significant proportion of people who endeavor to lose weight, whether it's like a very large amount, like they're losing a hundred pounds or maybe it's like 20 pounds, a lot of them gain it back. So is that something you also see with bariatric procedures or is it more of a definite type of weight loss? Well, I think that especially when it comes to bariatric surgery, a lot of the patients that we see years after they've gotten their surgery have indeed regained some degree of weight, some of them significant amounts back to, you know, where they started from um, and others just a little bit. But, um, but yeah, I think that uh, it is something that we see quite often and, um, and it's something that we can potentially help fix. And one of the things is I feel over the past couple of years, the thinking of bariatric surgery and post-surgical management has changed. I think in the past, there might've been this school of thought that, you know, you do the surgery and then 
it's a one and done procedure and patients can just go, go on with the rest of their lives without having to think about anything. But really, I think over the past few years, we've grown to realize that it's actually just a tool and that it still requires um, close follow-up and a lot of guidance with, um, you know, dietitians and other supportive, um, you know, supportive s- staff. So, uh, so yeah, it, it does, it's, it's more of a tool. And even now, like a lot of the uh, bariatric surgeries and bariatric endoscopy procedures that we do, um, that's how I, t- that's how I go about telling my patients about them is that it's just giving you a jump start. It's giving you time to adopt and adjust a lot of these um, changes to your lifestyle. And, and then in order to carry that forward, you kind of have to commit to that lifestyle change. And, um, so the procedures can get you down so far, but maintaining the weight loss or getting any further than what's expected is going to be entirely up to, um, dietary and lifestyle modifications. Definitely. We should have asked this before, but, um, I just wanted to clarify for some of the listeners out there who might not know, what exactly do you mean when you say these bariatric procedures and endoscopy and surgery, what does that mean? What are you doing to these people? Yeah. So bariatric surgery is surgical procedures go through the skin typically. And, um, and so the most common bariatric surgery that's performed in the country nowadays is the uh, sleeve gastrectomy where they're actually removing part of the stomach. Um, and that ends up leaving a smaller stomach, like a sleeve-shaped um, stomach. And so it can hold less food. People feel full faster and lose weight as a result. Um, in the past, gastric bypass was the most common at one point, And it still is done to a certain extent depending on what patients need. Uh, in terms of bariatric endoscopy, these are not surgical procedures because we're doing them through the mouth and not through the skin. But we still kind of mimic a lot of the different um, effects of bariatric surgery. So some of the devices that we have that are FDA approved include a balloon that can sit in the stomach for a couple months and then it gets removed. Another thing that we do is we can actually suture the stomach down to a third of its original size to kind of be like the shape of a sleeve without ever, without having to remove any part of the stomach. Um, so it kind of achieves a similar result. Wow. Yeah. That's, I didn't honestly realize like even as a medical student that uh, bariatric procedures can be done through the endoscope. I think that's, that's kind of incredible that that's an, is that a newer field or has that been around for some time? It's a newer field like within the past decade, but it certainly hasn't um, taken hold quite as uh, well, I think as like bariatric surgery, for instance. And part of it is insurance reimbursement. And part of it is because it just is so technically challenging. You kind of have to go through so much training to get here. And one of the goals as an entire field is to try to make it more generalizable and hopefully with how technology evolves, we'll be able to, you know, allow more gastroenterologists and other practitioners out there uh, to be able to do this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things when we talk about obesity, I feel like one of the the more, I guess, prominent things that has emerged is this talk about the, uh, microbiome and and epigenome as well. So, you know, some of the reading that I've done um, on some of the literature, it it kind of talks about how these bariatric procedures not only change, obviously, the shape and size of the stomach, but also can have some effect on a positive effect on the microbiome as well as the epigenome. Have you read any of that literature? And can you kind of speak to that at all? Yeah, I, I think that our understanding of all that is still really premature. And I actually was involved in running a study um, when I was at the Brigham where we actually 
randomized patients into two groups. One was receiving a fecal transplant and the other one was placebo. And the fecal transplant was of using a donor stool from someone with a BMI of 17. So someone who was very lean. Um, and we tried to see if that could help induce weight loss in patients who are suffering from obesity. But um, it didn't quite you know, bear any uh, significant results. Um, we were also, you know, our follow-up time was pretty short. It was three months. We were using like a surrogate, um, to not actual weight loss as our endpoint, but looking at um, certain gut hormones. So, you know, these studies are difficult to conduct and, um, and hopefully, you know, in the future we'll have a better idea, but there's a lot of anecdotal and like isolated events where you've definitely have heard of people who've had a fecal transplant, for instance, and because their microbiome is completely altered with that fecal transplant, they've ended up losing weight or gaining weight based on like what their donor, you know, sample was like. Interesting. Yeah. There certainly seems to be a lot of misinformation and kind of, uh, jumps off the ledge, so to speak, when it comes to talk about the microbiome. I think one of the best things I've heard is like, so the microbiome is like the ocean, right? And our understanding is like, we just dipped our feet in the water, but people try to use the microbiome in a way to maybe sell products or talk about how it has a profound effect on certain things, which no doubt it does, but it's, there's so little we understand about it. I feel like that it's hard to draw concrete conclusions about, um, you know, is it the chicken or the egg? Is it the microbiome that caused cause the problem or is it the problem that caused the microbiome changes? So that's an interesting kind of field that's going to probably change a lot in the next couple of years. Yeah, totally. And you're absolutely right that there are tons of people, individuals, groups out there that are trying to, you know, use the microbiome to, to sell products and um, totally unsubstantiated. And, and yeah, it's something that we'll just have to, you know, continue to deal with. And when it comes to preventive medicine, I think that um, like talking about the biome and all of these different things is where people try to make money on preventive medicine, which is why, number one, it also gets relegated kind of to the side because it's kind of like the wish wash medicine, you could say, um, when there are actual concrete things that can help preventively. And uh, you were touching on that a little bit earlier with the patients that undergo these procedures. Um, what are kind of some of the things that you do when you follow up with them to be maybe more preventive and help them out and support them for keeping that weight loss and sustaining it? Yeah. I mean, I think that I really try to delve into their, um, like social determinants of health a little bit. I think that, you know, I also rely on other professionals to help me out. Like I am not a dietitian, so I have them see one of our dietitians, And so I make sure they have close follow-up with them. And I think just being able to see them at regular intervals with a certain frequency really helps out with accountability and just giving patients that kind of moral support. So, um, and often that goes a long way, you know, especially when a lot of these patients I feel have been neglected a lot or judged. And, um, so just even being a presence there to, to be like a teammate really helps. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned the social determinants of health because I truly believe that's something we overlook quite often. And, in terms of not only, you know, a successful procedure or surgical procedure is only as successful as follow up and, and the actions that take place after that. And I think, you know, one of the things that we don't talk about as often with preventive medicine or health in general is the social economic status, you know, the, and, and the other determinants of health beyond just, you know, personal choices. I think that's something that goes a long way in terms of the long term care of a patient is not just the procedure or the advice or the 
know, the initial uh, motivational interview, so to speak. It's that long-term folks follow up with them and making sure that we're doing our best to make sure we're helping them overcome those obstacles as well. Yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, I think a lot of people, we have a limited amount of time in our visits, right? And as health professionals, we're trying to squeeze in as much as we can into that short visit. And, and often these things are overlooked because they're not kind of the um, conventional medical, you know, treatments that we're talking about. But, you know, it really makes a difference if you're able to suss out that a patient isn't able to carry out a treatment plan because of their work schedule, you know, if they're working a night shift or if the, however their work is the nature of their work or where they live and if it's safe out um, and what their literacy is, et cetera, there's so much that plays into it. Yeah. Now, this type of, this type of uh, like discussion that we're having is not something you would typically hear from someone who does a lot of procedures all day. So is this uh, due to your background in like obesity medicine, being board certified in that, or is this just other perspective you picked along from practice? I think it's partly that the obesity medicine training and also, um, also the public health background that I have. And um, you know, as you probably know, like in medical school, I feel like, Things may have changed since I was in med school, but I don't think that there was very much attention when I was in school to these topics. Yeah, still um, not. Still nope. not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, it's a, it's a constant challenge. And, you know, it's in part not because we, there's just so many things that warrant our attention in med school. And, um, and maybe, you know, maybe we'll start coming around to putting more uh, attention on to these sorts of things. Yeah, I think one of the things kind of we're, we're all kind of touching on right now are this, maybe the limitations of the current paradigm. And I think one of the ways that, you know, certainly we are trying to work outside that paradigm and you are as well with your use of social media, you know, how do you think social media fits in with all this in terms of, you know, we know there's a limitation on the current paradigm of patient treatment and that sort of thing. How do you think social media plays a role in kind of expanding on that and kind of circumventing these obstacles that are in our path in the, in the current traditional paradigm? I mean, I think the fact of the matter is that our patients just, you know, spend a very small amount of time with us in person and the rest of the time that they are being exposed to media, there's a lot of health information getting thrown at them, either through traditional media or the internet. And, um, and so the number one thing most directly that we can achieve through social media is actually putting out accurate information. And, um, and the other half of it is really kind of humanizing our profession a little bit and, and reducing that distance with the patient. Because otherwise, it just feels that we're really robotic and, um, and unapproachable. But, you know, that's not the type of patient, doctor-patient relationship that we're trying to strive for. And I think our interpersonal relationships have changed over, over the past, you know, couple of years because of how we interact on the Internet now. And, um, and so I feel that the patients who do follow me on social media um, have sort of, it's just one other element that we share and that, um, that they can connect to me about. Um, so I think that really helps. Yeah, certainly. It certainly adds a human component to medicine. I think where so many, you know, kind of the, the original setup for the medical field was very paternalistic. You know, I'm giving you this treatment, you take it, you don't argue with me and, and whatever. And now it's kind of changing into this, you know, and rightfully so, it's changing into a partnership where, you know, the, the goal is to be to consult with the patient and give them and help them 
make their own decisions and make changes for themselves, especially in this regard. So I think that social media is like you said, that one kind of one thing that can unite us and show patients that maybe like, Hey, we're human. You know, we, we tell jokes, we're funny. We you know, have a personality to us. We're not just medical robots. Exactly. Yeah. No, that's exactly what I've been trying to do to a certain extent and without compromising the information that I'm trying to put out there, obviously. So, um, so hopefully patients can get a little bit of me and get a little bit of learning out of it too. And for those who are listening, whether you're driving or whatnot, um, Dr. Chang was also recently featured, I think, on the New York Times, correct? Yeah. On the front page as like the viral TikTok doctor. Um, so I think you were one of the first people that like started making medical things on Twitter. Is that correct? Yeah. On TikTok, you mean? Yeah. 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 On TikTok, um, I was probably one of the first doctors, I would say, like the first, at least that I saw, probably like yeah. the first five or so. And, um, and what's funny because I then kind of came back to all of my friends on other platforms like Instagram and said, Hey, you guys should all check this out. And it, it took a little bit of convincing because it's just a totally new platform and you know, and when you're delving into a new platform, it can be really daunting. Um, and some people are just naturals, right? They just really love to be on camera and, and, and have fun and, and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, that whole journey started for me about over a year ago at this point, I was looking back at kind of the year in review for TikTok, and yeah. it started, um, at the end of August last year, pretty much September last year. Wow. Yeah. The, the amount of information you're able to give out on like something like TikTok, although it's like limited to second clips, you can just put out so much more. Whereas in like a patient room, you have what, 15 to 30 minutes, maybe with a patient. Um, whereas when they go home or even when they're in the room, sometimes like browsing through TikTok, through Instagram, through Twitter, whatever else. So I think it's just a much easier way to get a lot more attention to good quality information. Um, that kind of everyone is using these days. So why not do it? So, um, I think it was, super innovative of you and like super forward thinking to jump on that. Um, and I think more people should do it, including us, Jason, we should get on TikTok because we are not yet. Dude, I'm the most boring person on earth. My TikTok would be so boring. There would be no one watching TikTok. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at Prevent Pod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to In the show. In saying that, so, you know, I think one of the things that I think can be tricky as, you know, as new platforms emerge and we start to use them in a beneficial way, you know, is there, is there, are there areas that you feel like are tricky when you're trying to figure out, okay, where's the line in terms of my professional self and me sharing information on a, in a fun way, but is there a line of you know, social media professionalism? How do you find that line in kind of this uncharted territory? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, I think a lot of these uh, boundaries I've had to learn from mistakes in the past or, or observing other people's mistakes. And, um, and you know, there are, there's definitely a line there and I always, it always comes down for me to looking at, um, you know, trying to adopt the perspective of a patient who happens to come across my content. And if it's in any way can be perceived as offensive or something like that, then I, um, and that sort of is what I would avoid. Um, but there are so many nuances to social media use these days and how to approach it. 
um, whether it's professionalism, whether it's patient privacy or, you know, how to deal with sponsorships and conflicts of interest and everything there. Um, and that's part of the reason why we started the association for healthcare, social media. It's a nonprofit professional society that is, trying to legitimize the space that we have, you know, treating it just like any other medical subspecialty. And, um, and the goal is to help other health professionals do social media effectively, but also responsibly. You know, a lot of our colleagues um, on social media have had a lot of experience, both positive and negative, and, um, and they know how to use these platforms to its most optimal extent, but they've also run into a lot of problems in the past and, and have learned from those mistakes. So, no, that's the goal is that we can not only restrict it to those of us, you know, and, and kind of keep reinventing the wheel with people who are just jumping on to these platforms, but be able to spread the knowledge and have more people get online and, and do it well. Now, we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier on before we started recording, but it was kind of like the relationship between you being on social media and have a large presence and also working for an academic institution that is kind of like um, what people would think of as maybe corporate, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of balance the relationship between like still working for a hospital? Like, for example, sometimes I'll go to a hospital and say, don't post anything at all relating to this versus now you have it as your background. So what's, where's the balance there? It really varies by institution. So, you know, when it comes down to it, your employer has the final say as to what is allowed and what's not. And I fortunately work at a place that is a little more lenient with their social media policy. Um, and it's encouraged and they see the value in us using social media to, you know, um, impact our communities. Um, but that's not the case everywhere. And certain places have very strict rules about when you can be actually online on these platforms. You know, if you're at work, you really can't be using it. You shouldn't be filming anywhere in the hospital. You know, you can't mention the hospital name, et cetera. Um, and so it just depends on what your institutional policy is. And, and the reason why we have this organization is partly to move the needle a little bit and help other institutions see that there's value in this and there's, you know, there's a way to do it. That's not going to compromise. That's not going to be a liability to your institution. So, um, so it's a work in progress, but you know, we're, I think we're going to get there. In, in, in saying that, so do you envision a future where, you know, hospitals really adopt this, this kind of new frontier of a way to disseminate useful information and use it to jumpstart kind of like, will you see hospitals having like their social media team of doctors where their whole job or a huge part of their job is just social media, reaching people through these platforms? Um, I personally feel that for social media doctors to be social media doctors, they should still have their doctor job active. I think kind of quitting medicine altogether just kind of changes what your, um, you know, what your foundation is, you know, it's, it's, that's what you're leaning on to provide information to people. And if you're not actively practicing anymore, it becomes a little trickier. Um, but I think that in the future, one of the problems that we're facing now is that there's just, we only have so much time we're busy people. And how do we get doctors, especially those who are thought leaders 
who are already inundated with work, how do we get them to actually talk about their expertise online? And, um, and so one personal goal that I've been working on with Jefferson, I know some other institutions are also trying to um, work on as well, is having social media be incorporated into you know, the promotion structure. So yeah, I think that it's really important for, um, or, or where I think this is going in the future is that there needs to be incentives for physicians and other health professionals and thought leaders to get online and spend time in cultivating their social media presence because it takes a lot of time. It's a time commitment. And, um, and you know, in the future, maybe we'll see that not only our medical journal submissions and publications rewarded, but also time that you're spending actually reaching out to your communities and engaging with your patients. And that's where the disconnect is, right? You know, right now in academia, our focus is on advancing the fields, which is clearly very important, but not so much focusing on the communities. And, um, and hopefully we'll see that both are rewarded in the future. Definitely. I think one of the other difficulties is that when you think about physicians, we have a very specialized skill set in what we do. And I think social media and like the use of social media properly is a completely different skill that not many people have. And I think the people that are going into medicine specifically are not necessarily always the most creative either, which I think proper use of social media requires um, to be effective and to really get out there. So um, I think that's definitely also another problem. I don't know if we're ever going to see a future where like, physician trained in like social media post creation or whatnot. But I definitely think that communication is something that should be taught to more physicians. As you were saying, put yourself in a patient's shoes to see like how they would want to be spoken to what would work effectively. So I can definitely see a future where that happens as well. Maybe at institutions, maybe in medical school, but I think it'd be, um, pretty good. Yeah. It's, I don't think that it's, um, for everyone, you know, not everyone has to put themselves out there on the internet. You know, I think it's just another option for people to, you know, participate in. And, um, and hopefully, you know, especially with every passing generation that there's going to be more and more people used to using social media and who are tech savvy and can, you know, quickly adopt these platforms. Um, but you're right. We don't get you know, in, in speaking about things that we don't learn in medical school, there certainly is very little about marketing and PR and communications and everything that goes into social media. Um, and a lot of us have had to learn just by trial and error along the way. And, um, and it's tough because even when you talk to social media professionals, communications professionals, they have a different perspective than we do because we have so many things that we have to look out for when communicating health information. We're kind of held to a different standard and, um, and it's tricky to navigate that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, in that vein, talking about being held to a different standard, I think, you know, in, in the name of, you know, uh, I guess evidence-based practice, I think sometimes physicians are implicated in the, in the spread of misinformation. I think, especially when it comes to nutrition. So you being an obesity specialist, I'm sure this frustrates you as well. Uh, my background is in nutrition. So my, my bachelor's degree is actually nutrition science. I didn't know I wanted to go to medical school until way too late. So, um, but, so I'm frustrated quite often with some of the information that's spread by physicians because of the authoritative position that physicians have when it comes to you know, uh, any advice we give or, you know, or is put out there is going to be taken with, you know, some sort of authority. So, um, do you feel like, um, 
when people kind of draw that conclusion, like, oh, doctors don't know anything about nutrition, and kind of some of that's validated by some of the information that's spread by physicians. How do we combat that as physicians? Well, I think it's different from when we're trying to combat misinformation that's coming from non-physicians versus our colleagues. And I think for our colleagues, you know, there's a lot of immediate feedback that we get from other physicians. And so I think that as there's, um, as people feel more comfortable using these social media platforms, you know, that feedback is pretty, you know, from within our field is pretty rapid and, um, and, and I, you know, people are not afraid to, to call me out if I'm talking about something that is, you know, out of my lane or if it's, it's inaccurate. And, um, and so, and, you know, in, in turn, I learned to also fact check a lot more thoroughly before putting something out there. Um, but then, you know, it's a whole different ball game when it comes to trying to combat misinformation coming from outside our field, because, you know, obviously there's a whole different understanding of how medical information is interpreted and, um, and, you know, there's a different dynamic altogether. So, um, so I think, yeah, I think fortunately we're getting to a point where if there are physicians spewing misinformation, that chances are there are other physicians keeping them in check as well. And, um, and unfortunately, just like any other field out there or any topic out there, there are always going to be certain doctors who are not putting out good information. And you, it makes you wonder like what their ulterior motive is. Um, but yeah, it, it certainly exists, but I feel like right now there's, uh, the bigger problem in general is that there's just so much, um, misinformation coming from outside of our fields that we have to deal with too. <laughs> Definitely. I don't want to touch on the misinformation coming from outside our fields because I think we could go on endlessly about that. We know everything that's going on. So I'm not going to go there. But since we're turning back to kind of more of the medicine, your specialty kind of thing, I was just going to add. And when it comes to like fact checking and stuff, um, when people think of bariatric endoscopy or any procedure in general, they're kind of af not necessarily afraid of it, but they think like, oh, this is uh, Western medicine is doing a procedure, classic. We shouldn't do it. Avoid it at all costs. Stick to natural measures. Um, what could you kind of say to people who are kind of in that camp i think a lot of the people who say things like that have a certain degree of privilege where they don't necessarily suffer from those conditions and it's easy to recommend natural um remedies when they haven't gone through the process of already having tried some of those natural remedies and a lot of my patients are coming to see me and other you know proceduralists because they've already tried many different other things and at the end of the day, you know, if the goal is to help reduce cardiovascular risk, for instance, and not, you know, spend more years um, suffering from a condition that that heightens their risk in those areas, then then they need to, you know, have these sorts of options available to them. Um, so I always advocate for a less invasive method. Um, if possible, you know, we start off with di diet and lifestyle modifications and if necessary, we can move on to pharmacotherapies and then if really need be, we can then explore procedures um, because, and I tell patients all the time that, you know, the more, um, the, the procedures obviously come with greater risk as well. And, uh, and we would not want to put you through something that carries unnecessary risk if possible. Yeah, Definitely. absolutely. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just, just going to add that. I feel like 
you know, sometimes things like that procedures get looked at as like the quote unquote like easy way out. When in reality, you're not changing the fact that lifestyle change still has to take place. When the after the procedure's over, lifestyle change is still the like the direction that the, these patients need to head in. And mm-hmm. I think some people for like don't realize, like you said, the privilege of, you know, we or, or how much they don't understand about the genetics of obesity or the socioeconomic status, how that affects obesity or other social determinants of health, all those things that people who maybe don't don't have to deal with, they look at it as like, oh, they're just making poor choices, which in some degree, you know, personal responsibility is part of that. But I think as healthcare providers, we need to look at every aspect of, of what's going on in the patient's life that can lead to these better choices. And I think that these procedures kind of give people more inherent motivation to keep going. You know, if they can, if they see the progress, if they're like immediately starting to see the benefits of this procedure, it can jumpstart those lifestyle changes that we're talking about. Yeah. And some people need rapid weight loss. Some people need to lose weight in a more rapid manner so that they can move on to their knee surgery or their, you know, transplant. And, um, and in those situations, you know, I think that it's, yeah, they, these options have to be available to them. Yeah. And I think when, uh, one of the things that Jason and I also like to stress a lot on this podcast is that preventive medicine isn't just about those lifestyle measures and like the eating right, working out, sleeping. It, it's a consortium of a whole bunch of things, including things like bariatric endoscope, because that is preventive of other measures. And it all kind of goes together based on the specific patient's circumstance and what's prevention for them. It can be like primary prevention, maybe it's secondary, tertiary, even quaternary. It's all still prevention of making things worse. And at the end, um, helping people live better their lives. Yeah, exactly. No, I totally agree. So one of the other questions we always love to ask is, so this is actually probably most relevant for you based on your, your big social media following, but say you're at Starbucks, you're at whatever coffee shop and someone comes up to you, they're like, Dr. Shang, I just saw you on TikTok. How do I get healthy? And you have two minutes before your coffee's ready. What's your two minute elevator pitch for here's how you get healthy. Oh man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one. I would say, you know, health isn't achieved overnight. I think that it requires um, a team approach. So, you know, find a doctor or a practitioner who you can follow with regularly and establish a relationship. It's not meant to be you know, something that you go at alone. And, and this applies to so many different things. You know, so when I talk to patients who are struggling with smoking cessation or something like that, you know, it often doesn't happen on the first try. It happens on, you know, the sixth, seventh, eighth try. And, um, and, but, you know, it's not meant to be a journey that's traveled alone. Having somebody there to, um, you know, be your support system is really, really important. Um, and, and I think that, you know, Part of it is um, just getting an understanding of how our health system works and and being equipped with uh, medical information um, from the get-go, which is something that's not taught in schools. Like, you know, growing up, there's there isn't much attention paid to these things, which is really um, unfortunate because I think with just a little bit of understanding a little more understanding of how, you know, our bodies work and how the system works can really go a long way. And, and those are the types of changes that I'm hoping to achieve on social media and why, um, you know, for people who are looking to follow like a doctor on social media, it, it sometimes isn't going too deep into the technical details because that's so specific. And when we're talking about 
what sort of gains you can get from following someone on social media. I think that it's more the broad kind of, um, the broad concepts that we need to hammer, um, hammer down, uh, rather than, you know, focusing on those, those little items. So, um, I know that wasn't really quite an elevator pitch, (laughs) but I would say that that's the back end, I guess, of having a social media presence. Those are things that are going through my mind is, you know, how much, um, how helpful are certain things that I'm putting out there and, and what audience am I trying to serve here? And, um, and that's why I vary up my content a little bit here and there to address, you know, broad concepts, things that are also relevant and timely, like, COVID right now versus uh, really specific things that maybe certain patients are looking for, um, you know, and, and trying to find more information about through scouring the internet. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that in the future we can look to social media for, um, for health information. And I would also encourage everyone to really double and triple check who they're trusting online because not everyone who um, says they're a doctor is a doctor. Not everyone who, you know, is a doctor has a great track record. And so the more they ask around and engage with other health professionals, they can kind of get a sense of, you know, who might have, um, you know, a better grasp on whatever condition they have. I think your, uh, I think your coffee went cold there, <laughs> but, uh, you definitely gave a very well-rounded answer, which you can appreciate. Um, you didn't say just go get surgery or get a procedure done, which is incredible. You realize that there's so many different components that go into this. And at the end of the day, you have to reach the specific person that you're talking to. So you have to kind of tailor your message. So I really appreciate that answer. Yeah. And you know, we think you're putting out great content. I think, you know, obviously based on, you know, us, doing what we're doing, we totally believe that this is one of the ways of the future are these different, you know, pathways to getting good information out there. So, you know, we're really happy to see docs like you going out there and, you know, really making a difference, not just in your day-to-day job, but in your social media platform and, you know, reaching a ton of people. So it's been awesome to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. It was great being on here. Is there anything that you want to plug? We'll have your social media and everything like already plastered everywhere, but there's, there any project or anything you want to shout out? Um, I mean, I kind of wove it in there already, like the association. I think that that's one thing that I always, um, try to plug in there. Um, I mean, I didn't go into it like into more depth, but you know, the association is everything that I described, like we're trying to legitimize the space and we're trying to be a resource and we've been able to, uh, form partnerships with some of these social media platforms so that they're providing kind of courses straight from their headquarters, like YouTube and LinkedIn. And, and Hmm. a lot of us have connections with the other social media platforms. So I'm in the process of trying to see if we can get TikTok to do something with us to help educate people who are not used to using the platform or, you know, Instagram, et cetera. Jason, we're getting in on this once this podcast is done, by the way. <laughs> I'll, I'll record you doing things on TikTok. How about that? <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, but yeah, we want to we wanna thank you for your time. We really appreciate um, everything you've talked to us about today. We're sure that there's a lot of valuable content in here for our listeners. So once again, thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.